Happy New Year and welcome to the first edition of It's Your Money of 2024. It's the Mayor Broadsword podcast where we help you get the most from your savings and investments. I'm Andrew Harrison and with me as ever it's Andy Mayer. Hello Andy, how are you doing? Happy New Year to you all, very well thank you. How was your Christmas? Was it inflation proof or was it a price shock? <laughs> it was an interesting one because my son decided to have appendicitis going to hospital for three days. But the upside was he got surgery after Celtic had beaten Rangers. So he went into the operating theatre very calm because we knew we'd be top of the league. This time on the podcast, every newspaper and magazine in the land is filling up with New Year, New You stories this time of year. But instead of shaming you into the gym or trying to sell you a Peloton subscription, we're going to take a calm and measured look at the year ahead. And to help us, we have a special guest returning to the podcast. Mike Coop is Chief Investment Officer for Europe, Middle East and Africa at the financial data company Morningstar. And he is a long-lasting friend of the podcast. Hello, Mike. How are you doing? Very well, and uh, delighted to be here and delighted to have all the folks uh, listening in as well. How are you feeling about the economy at this frosty time of the year, straight after Christmas? How are you feeling in your bones? In my bones? Um, (laughs) Well, I'll just inspect a few bones and tell you. Yeah, I, I think things have played out much better than people were expecting. Uh, we're, we're all got a bit too pessimistic uh, at the start of last year. And so things turned out better than people thought. And, and hence, we have that nice little Santa Claus rally in markets. So we're going to be talking today about the outlook for 2024 based on Morningstar's research and projections. So first up, Mike, tell us how you put this together. Because uh, well, I've, I've read through it and it's primarily based in the, around the US, but has worldwide significance. Is that right? It's really something we've put together to support our clients, no matter where they are in the world. Uh, And it's still the case the US is is often a starting point for trying to make sense of some of the things that are happening, but there's also a heavy local element as well. So I think putting that all together for people who are here, of course, uh, the UK perspective uh, is, is even more important. But yes, you're right. We start off with the US. We happen to have a pretty large team of folks covering a wide range of specializations based around the world. And what that does, it just helps you get out of your usual local mindset in thinking about how others might perceive your situation, which usually is a lot better than you think it is. So you were saying you're uh, a bit more optimistic at the end of the year than, than, than you were at the start. Tell us, let, let's take a quick tour, tour de raison of the economic environment at the moment. Is Inflation has been the huge bugbear for the past few years. Is it fading in the US as well as in the UK? What's, what's the outlook on inflation for us? The interesting thing about last year was the market started off being overly pessimistic and then ended up the year being much um, more positive. We tend to take a longer term view and expect a range of outcomes, um, as well as one that we think is more likely. Um, so I think we did start off the year with the sense that inflation was likely to keep on going down, and some of those factors people were worried about were unwind. Um, that's not to say that we perfectly foresaw what was going to happen, but I think as we sort of sit here today, uh, I think we can say a few things. Firstly, we can say that clearly. Um, inflation has come down. It's just under 4% in the UK now. It was over double that 12 months ago. And that was much lower than most people were really expecting. And if you look overseas, you see exactly the same factors. That's really important because there's a link between inflation and interest rates. Um, And interest rates have a big bearing on how financial assets behave. So inflation coming down um, was really a terrific news. Uh, there's a global element to that, and there's a local element. 
So the global element was kind of the unwind of some of the pressures we saw in the pandemic, where we had, frankly, people spending too much and and, and factories and companies not being able to produce enough. Uh, and that gradually, after about three years, reversed because all of those factories that were shut um, during 2020, or there were bottlenecks in 2021, have have gradually gone away. In fact, they're, they're back to full capacity. Whilst people who were spending like a drunken sailor in 2020, sitting at home, nothing to do, money coming in, have instead, you know, had to um, pay more, pay more for food, pay more for for for, for travel, transport, um, uh, pay more for heating their homes, and of course now had to pay significantly more for their mortgages. So all of that means people are spending less, and so that reversal of that too much demand, not enough supply has brought inflation down everywhere. We've also had other things that have happened, such as the um, energy uh, oil prices come down after the invasion of the Ukraine, which had a huge impact on people in the UK because of of the impact on gas prices and therefore uh, central heating. So those things we know have happened, and that's really important. It's really important because it sets the scene for a different type of range of scenarios this year. before I get on to onto other things, I'll just say this: you know, we think inflation will continue to kind of ease off a bit and stay relatively low. And there's some some wild cards around that, such as what happens in the conflict areas of the Ukraine and, of course, in the Middle East. Um, uh, but we think the general trend will stay stay uh, down and relatively low. With the UK also eventually having some of those Brexit-related inflationary pressures easing as time goes past. So as you said, interest rates and uh, inflation are massively intertwined. What is going on with with interest rates? What kind of era are we going into? We obviously have all felt the impact of interest rates going up um, by pretty much 5% over, over about a two-year period. And for some um, folks who whose memories extend back maybe 15 years, that will seem shocking. But for folks who can recall what it was like in the 1990s for most of the 2000s and before, it won't seem shocking at all. What will seem shocking is that rates were so low for so long. So we're now back to what really is a more normal environment. And in that more normal environment, yes, there's scope for interest rates to come off now that we see inflationary pressures ease. If the economy does start to weaken further, yes, there's a, there's a decent case for rates to go down, and that's what markets have been kind of betting on in the last few months. But there's also scenarios where rates could go up. So we think that we are going to be living in a world where interest rates are going to be higher than what we've seen in the last 15 years on average. And inflationary pressures probably will still stay a bit higher than what we've been used to. But it's more the fact that interest rates were just unnaturally low. And when you have interest rates that are unnaturally low for that long, it's a bit like having zombies out there. Um, you have the zombie companies that, sh- that, that really aren't making any money and it can only get by because it's so cheap to borrow money. And when that period is over, those companies can't carry on. And people who've borrowed lots of money on the basis that money is free it will have to find they have to sell their assets and, and readjust. So we're going through that longer period of an adjustment to this new normal of interest rates being much higher than we used to see for the last 15 years. But in the long view of history, they're not high at all. Andy, what does that mean for savers and investors then? If we're going into a higher interest rate period and we're going to have to get used to it, what does that does that change the kind of advice or the thinking that you're, uh, you're dealing with? We've had people in the past, Andrew, fixed at 1.5 for five years now. 
those days have gone. So I think people, when they're refinancing their mortgages and their debts, are going to get used to threes and 4%. But we've had people in the last 12 months looking at 6%. So it is going to be a more normalized environment where you might look at fixed rates at 3 and 4%. And as you said earlier, I had a mortgage back in the late 80s at 15.9%. So I think, as Mike has alluded to, those days of 1% on an interest rate for mortgages have just gone. And it's going to be a more normalized environment for borrowing. But the plus side is for some people who are carrying cash in the bank, they're going to get some form of return on it. May not be great, but historically for the last decade, people who've had money in savings have been getting zilch. I was a little bit frightened by uh, the Morningstar report when I read that Europe remains more fragile economically. Economic growth has been essentially flat since COVID with the Eurozone now likely to be in a technical recession. Is that right? Are we in a recession and we don't really know about it? Or is Britain sufficiently on the fringes of the Eurozone now that it's not going to affect us? Those comments very much you know, echo a period when the European economy got hit pretty hard, really by two things. Firstly, the slowdown in China. Um, German economy is a big exporter. And then the second, of course, is the follow-on effect of the Russian attempt to take over Ukraine, which has severed lots of, of supply chains and particularly impacted European countries. So we've had those effects which have made the Europe a lot weaker than other places. In the UK, we've had we've had a combination of, of a longer and bigger impact from COVID, as well as um, some Brexit-related effects. Oddly enough, it hasn't had the normal telltale sign of weakness, which is that unemployment shoots up. So that hasn't happened. That's that's the classic sign when you're really in um, a bad economic situation. So yes, things have been very flat, but we haven't really seen seen that sort of sign. And that's what that's the sign that really matters. Actually, it's unemployment jumping. So although we say weak economies, it's not so weak that it's having that kind of impact. It has felt like, as you mentioned, it has felt like a very volatile period in terms of you know, conflict, localised wars, um, the huge energy shock, the food shock. We're now seeing supply chains being interrupted because of attacks on shipping in, in the Red Sea. Is this a world we're going to have to get used to? That, that actually, as well as normalisation of higher interest rates, we're also going to have to get used to the world being a bit more uh, you know, beset by conflict and by these unpredictable things that sort of you know, impact the economy uh, from left field. It's funny how this has come back into people's perspective because for a long period of time, um, the, the field of economics um, was really called the political economy, which meant that you had to factor in how governments were going to behave compared to each other. As well as what would normally happen with uh, when you pull one economic lever, will that cause inflation or growth to change? So we're certainly back in that or out of the period of stability and peace that uh, broke out in the early 90s and lasted an unusually long time. We're back to a level of conflict that's a bit more normal without it being a level of conflict which is anywhere near what we saw, say, in the Second World War or the First World War. So, yes, there are going to be these. Um, conflicts which impact everything and impact the economy, uh, particularly although we don't see what's happening now as in any way similar in magnitude to what we observed in the pandemic, where there really was a massive shutdown that had had an extraordinarily broad and wide and and sudden effect. So yes, you're quite right. You know there there are these disruptions that are having some effects, but that's a bit more normal and it's not 
yet on a scale where it, it would be large enough to seriously impact things. But you have to pay more attention to managing risk. One thing we know is definitely going to happen this year is a presidential election in the United States. And it's going to be very different from almost all of them, perhaps with the exception of the last one. Massive potential consequences for democracy itself there. But what about the economic side? I mean, firstly, there's so much noise and anger comes out of American politics that it's hard to see how Biden's economic policies are doing. Can you assess how Biden's delivering on on, uh, on what he promised? Well, the Signature Act of Biden uh, beyond a more coherent response to the pandemic uh, has been the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is designed to encourage non-fossil fuels. And there's also been an element of encouraging, if you like, an onshoring of manufacturing and investment in the US. So that has had a huge effect it's akin to a really like a massive spending spree and huge tax cuts. And it, it has accelerated growth significantly. Unlike its title, Inflation Reduction Act, it probably has in the short term increased inflation repressures because of that. However, those inflationary pressures have come down for the reasons I mentioned earlier. And inflation in the US is now uh, within the within the kind of orbit of what would be regarded as, as a normal range of outcomes. That um, is also helping Biden's popularity because that's what people face in the day of their lives, the affordability, and as prices, inflation eases and some prices come off, and if indeed interest rates come off, that will have a pretty significant impact actually on the perception of whether Biden did well or didn't do well from an economic point of view. But there hasn't been a recession and inflationary pressures come down. So, you know, that's pretty positive. Um, but the message hasn't really permeated yet politically. Yeah, and it's quite hard to see what Trump would do economically uh, because he's conducting himself primarily, you know, with reference to his court cases and sort of prosecuting the idea that the last election was stolen from him. He's not really on a policy platform at the moment. So all we've got to go on is what he did last time. What do you think would be the consequences for the economy of a Trump win? So last time around, Trump's policies were related in terms of the economy to helping businesses and in particular helping his own business, uh, <laughs> unsurprisingly. So that, that basically meant, uh, you know, cutting- At least he was consistent. <laughs> yes, he is consistent. And um, you can expect more of the same. So cutting taxes for companies and changing the, the taxation in, in a very significant, favorable way for companies helped, um, as well as his own personal interests. And he's in, in favor of making debt cheap. So he's a kind of pro-growth fundamental policy. His platform suggests that he will do everything to stimulate fossil fuels. So that would be a change. Whether he'd go so far as to reverse the Inflation Reduction Act is hard to know if some of that is stimulating investment and growth. There's a bit less of a shock factor in terms of knowing what he's like. The other thing we don't really know is what he'd do on taxation in relation to imports. Would he go the whole hog? Would he jack up uh, import tax rates? That would be good for American companies, but bad for other companies. And then would there be a tip for tax response? We just don't know. So there's too much uncertainty to even you know be able to map it out. And ultimately, you're sort of also bumping up against the the guardrails of democracy 
um, that work and policy that work in the US. So would he find a way to take over the US Federal Reserve tax control interest rates? Um, and the extreme scenarios, would he even go so far as to not worry about repaying debt? Um, would he have the ability to do that? So I think people will consider these shock scenarios, but they probably won't be thinking hard about the scenarios of policies that could be quite positive for the economy or for companies. So um, generally speaking, most elections don't really result in in lasting and major changes that affect the value of assets over, over significant periods. So there's knee-jerk responses. People guess about what might happen. As you know, people say things ahead of an election, but when they get into office, it's often different. And the circumstances evolve and their response to those circumstances evolve. So it really is impossible to be able to, 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 to hang your hat on a, uh, a guess about what will happen to the elections uh, and then base an investment strategy off it. Generally speaking, they're pretty short-term effects. We deliberately try and build in some um, diversification in portfolios so that, that there's a range of scenarios where we've got something which is going to work. Um, and this would be how we'd think about this as well. Another thing that's going to be a huge determinant this year is going to be technological innovation, and particularly artificial intelligence, which Morningstar has been putting in the same historic category as the printing press, the steam engine, and electricity in terms of how it could completely change not just the economy and industry, but our own our, our very lives. How are you kind of seeing the impact of AI at the industrial level of production and innovation and stuff like that? Because, you know, I don't know a single person in any business who doesn't feel that it's kind of knocking on the door of their job. It's one of those things that actually is already here. It's not like a stranger knocking up a door saying, "Can I come in?" Um, they're kind of the bits of the strangers that, that are in every aspect of your life, from your phone, you know, suggesting how to end your sentences, like like a like a twin, like identical twin, through to the breakthroughs that have gotten attention this year with generative AI um, for recognizing faces and being able to suggest things rather than just sort of repeat things. So the the really interesting point in history is where all of us start to adapt and apply those innovations. It's not really so much when they're invented or even when they're commercialized. It's when they're used. So all of the business, all the households, when they all start to do it, that's when you really start to see the effects. And usually what happens is um, there's an improvement in quality then things become a bit easier to do. Then there's new things that get created that you couldn't imagine uh, even existing. I mean, you know, Google didn't exist 40 years ago, uh, f- for example, and here it is now. What a phenomenal company. So those things lead to the creation of new new roles. What you tend to hear most about is people losing jobs in, in older firms that um, aren't able to adapt. And, that's, and it all sounds very gloomy, but actually – they're generally pretty positive in terms of, of new opportunities that get created, new skill sets. And they're, they're what you want. That is how you improve living standards. That is how you get productivity that creates more wealth. So it's, it's definitely a positive thing. And we're closer now to this being adapted in various ways than before. So it's exciting in the next three, four, five years to see how this plays out. Um, it generally tends to bring inflation down. It reduces barriers to entry. Uh, which can make it a bit tough for companies. So you need to 
understand what that's going to mean for the company that you're invested in, which is what we try to do. Uh, but the immediate beneficiaries who are selling stuff today, companies like NVIDIA that are selling semiconductors that are used to harness big data analysis are doing very well. That doesn't mean they're going to be doing very well in five years' time or three years' time. The, the stock market's giving them the benefit of the doubt now. Well, we th- you know, we've got equity analysts who, who assess that and, and they still think there's plenty to go there. But the point is, when things change rapidly, you can't dogmatically predict what's going to happen. Um, so that's why we tend to use this valuation approach to try and work out when people got carried away and when um, there's still some positives there. But overall, positive thing and should start to benefit all of us more to a greater degree than we've seen for a while. To kind of wrap up then, Morningstar has more or less three takeaways from uh, the, the kind of outlook for the year. Have a robust portfolio, say yes to bonds, and risk creates opportunity. Can you tell us a little bit about each of those? Firstly, have a robust portfolio. It sounds kind of obvious because like that's diverse, isn't it? But tell us a little bit more about that. So it's it's reflective of the fact that when things change rapidly, when there's conflict, and when you're in a transition period, it's pretty hard to know what's going to happen. In general, what you're really looking for is to help all of you meet your investment goals and not to have a wild ride. Um, So to not have a wild ride, we're looking for things that can help us in a range of different scenarios, even if those things aren't super attractive today. But we also obviously want not just to avoid a wild ride, but we want to have a good outcome in the end. We want things to compound at a good rate of return turn. Um, So that's what we mean by robust. We test out for different scenarios, the investments that we like today, and think about other things that could complement it and have that diversification. So that's what, when we say robust, that's what we mean. On the yes to bonds, you know, bonds are, um, along with equities, the building blocks of all investment strategies that, that grow assets and that allow you and grow wealth and allow you to preserve or keep up with inflation, your spending power. So the reason that works is because they kind of um, they look after each other in a way. So the scenario that's bad for equities is a recession, where companies um, struggle because their sales are, sales are down, and usually in that scenario, inflation drops, and everyone flocks to the safe asset. So good quality bonds do really well. The other scenario where bonds don't do well, equities generally do well, which is a stronger growth environment where there's a link between what's causing inflation and the profits of those companies. So they're naturally quite good. We had a period where, where bond, the yield you got on bonds was, was, was very low, and that now is past us. So you're now able to get much better rate of return on bonds than you could before. Um, so that tends to mean they can withstand shifts in interest rates to a much greater degree than they could have before. So that's why we think they're, they're a good thing to have. And then the risk creates opportunity. What we mean by this really is as things move around and investors' sentiment swings from being you know, very happy one minute to very sad the next minute and pricing assets as if everything's going to be fantastic forever to, oh, things going to be terrible forever, that creates opportunities. So you get people, they get too pessimistic and you can pick up assets for a lower price than you should really pay for them, which is great. Um, similarly, when people get overly optimistic, it allows you to sell things for a higher price than you would normally be able to do, which you can which you can make money from. So we always review uh, the outlook um, and what it means for portfolios on a very regular basis. But we've ended up changing por- portfolios more regularly than we did previously because things are shifting around to a greater degree. So that's what I mean by risk creates opportunities. So finally, 
if people are going to take away one thing from this podcast about the the outlook of this year and what it means for their their investments and their savings, what what should it be? I think managing risk is what it's all about, and focusing on managing risk well and not chasing things and not getting carried away. That's what I like to hear. Just be calm. That's it's it's that's something I can actually get my head around. Mike Coop, thank you so much. My pleasure. And Andy, thanks for having us. Do you feel uh, enlightened and calmed and uh, soothed and uh, all the rest of it? Yeah, I always like listening to Mike because he makes the complicated sound simple and he puts it in a way that everyone can understand. Well, if I can half understand it, then it must be good. <laughs> Chaps, thank you very much for uh, for joining us on the podcast. Andy, you've got, you've got some news, haven't you, about your Meet the Manager event? Well, the three of us here, Mike, yourself and myself are doing a Meet the Manager night on the 24th of January at the Dean Swift Pub in London. Mike's going to do a 20 to 30 minute presentation. Then, Andrew, you're going to do a question and answer session with the people who are there. We've got about 10 spaces left. I think it's a great opportunity because I think there's slight uncertainty or understanding of what fund managers do and what they look like. I think there's this myth that they're either Wall Street and Gordon Gecko or the Wolf of Wall Street. And... <laughs> I think bringing Mike to meet people, and Mike is a great fund manager. He's a great speaker. In fact, I once traveled back from America on an overnight plane, landed and went straight to listen to Mike speak, because like I say, he's one of my favorite speakers ever in this area, uh, this area that I work in. So if we get a chance to listen to Mike, and I would urge anyone who's not signed up for it, give me a call because it will be really entertaining. And the other thing is I'm buying everyone a few beers. So few free beers off Andy is something just to worth attending anyway. Well, that sounds like it'll be a good night. And also, we will be recording the Q&A bit. So if you can't make it down, if you're uh, if you're from far away from London uh, or you just can't make it on the night, you'll be able to listen on the next edition to the podcast as uh, uh, I, I grill Mike over further um, investment matters. Listeners, thanks so much for listening to our first show of 2024. Um, luckily, nobody's got to have to remember not to write 2023 on their checks because nobody uses checks anymore. So that's one thing you don't have to worry about. We're going to try and keep you informed throughout the new year. So remember to follow It's Your Money on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll get the next edition sent to your phone automatically. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.